<clears throat> Please be seated. So we're continuing our series in the Shorter Catechism, and we are now at the Tenth Commandment, which is question 79. So today, as we've done with the other commandments, this is our first day with the Tenth Commandment, first week with it, I guess I should say. So we'll have a general introduction to this commandment, and then I intend to have three more sermons on specific matters that are related to this commandment. It's a very important commandment because it is the commandment that specifically commands and addresses matters of the heart. We have seen that all the other commandments should be understood as speaking to the heart. You know, we've looked at that like when it says you should not commit adultery, that if you lust after a woman in your heart, then you've committed adultery with her already. So that they all have to do not only with outward conduct, but with the heart. But this commandment is different because it goes straight to the heart. It speaks of the heart directly. This is an important distinguishing mark of true biblical faith. If you truly know God as he is, you know him as the one who searches the secrets of our hearts. Man looks on the outward appearance. You can see the fruit of what is in the heart in the way that people live. But God looks straight at the heart. And even when we're living hypocritically and maybe we're looking better on the outside than what we are on the inside, the Lord knows the intents and the motives that are behind everything. And he commands those as well, the desires and such, as well as the outward behavior. So if you walk with the Lord, you know that he knows your heart even better than you do. That's why we ask him to search me and try me and see if there is any wicked way in me and lead me in the way everlasting. As we study this commandment, we're also going to run into some biblical doctrine that confronts the erroneous way many people in our day look at desires of the heart. We have kind of made our desires our personal desires to be something that's sacred and that is holy that we are not allowed to challenge or touch. And we'll see that that's really false in uh, God's economy. So uh, we'll get to some of that today in this introductory message, and we'll be looking at it further in, in the weeks to come. Well, let's begin then, as we usually do with the new commandment, by confessing what the catechism says about the commandment itself. And that would be question 79 again. So we will confess the answer in unison. I'll ask the question, and then you confess the answer. Question 79, which is the tenth commandment? The tenth commandment is, Thou shalt not covet thy neighbor's house, thou shalt not covet thy neighbor's wife, nor his manservant, nor his maidservant, nor his ox, nor his ass, nor anything that is thy neighbor's. Our scripture reading that corresponds with this is Galatians 5, verse 16 through 26. So I'll read that as a passage that is related to this 10th commandment. Give your attention as I read to you now from the word of God. Galatians 5, 16. I say then, walk in the spirit and you shall not fulfill the lust of the flesh. For the flesh lusts against the spirit and the spirit against the flesh. And these are contrary to one another so that you do not do the things that you wish. But if you are led by the spirit, 
you are not under the law. For the works of the flesh are evident, which are adultery, fornication, uncleanness, lewdness, idolatry, sorcery, hatred, contentions, jealousies, outbursts of wrath, selfish ambitions, dissensions, heresies, envy, murders, drunkenness, revelries, and the like, of which I tell you beforehand, just as I told you in time past, that those who practice such things will not inherit the kingdom of God. But the fruit of the Spirit is love, joy, peace, long-suffering, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, self-control. Against such there is no law. And those who are Christ have crucified the flesh with its passions and desires. If we live in the Spirit, let us also walk in the Spirit. Let us not become conceited, provoking one another, envying one another. May the Lord add His blessing to the reading of His holy and infallible Word. So there's something rather striking about this passage in Galatians that it has in common with the Tenth Commandment. And that is, both passages speak of our sinful desires. In, in introducing you to the Tenth Commandment, I want to begin with this observation, with the observation of our first point, that the Tenth Commandment prohibits sinful desires. The Hebrew word translated covet in our English Bibles simply means desire. Our English word covet usually refers to inappropriate or sinful desires. Not always, but it's usually more of a figurative use when it doesn't. But the Hebrew word kalmad is not limited to wrongful desires, but also includes any kind of desire, both good and bad desires. For example, in Psalm 19, we're told that the law of God is to be desired more than gold yea, more than much fine gold. And so the idea there is that the coveting the law of God is a good thing, desiring the law of God. It's the word kamad there. The word, uh, the, the, the same word that's translated covet in the 10th commandment. The same thing is true with the Greek word that is translated by the word covet in the New Testament. The Greek word is epithumeo, and it's also used for good desires as well as sinful desires or covetous desires. You can see how, God, how good desires and bad desires are set off against each other in Galatians 5, 16, and 17. Here, the word epithumeo is translated lust, okay? Desire, lust, uh, covet. You see, Galatians 5, 16 through 17, he says, Paul says, I say then, walk in the Spirit, and you will not fulfill the lust, epithumeo, of the flesh. For the flesh lusts against the Spirit, and the Spirit against the flesh. And these are contrary to one another, so that you do not do the things that you wish. Now the word epithumeo in verse 17 is the verb that's used for both the flesh and the Spirit, though it's not repeated the second time. The implication is clear that it's saying the lust of the flesh against the lust of the spirit. So the flesh and the spirit are said to lust against or desire against one another. In other words, as believers, we're said to have sinful desires that are against 
our spiritual or godly desires, God-given desires, and spiritual desires that are against our fleshly, sinful desires. They are, they are contrary to each other. Paul gives us these rather lengthy lists of the works of the flesh, the works that grow out of our sinful desires, and then in contrast with them, the fruit of the Spirit and the things that grow out of our spiritual desires. And they're very different. They go in very opposite directions to each other. These are, in both cases, what our desires, whether good desires in one case or bad desires in another case, produce. What comes up out of us from our desires of our heart. Again, let's look at it. Verse 19 through 21, verses 19 through 21, describe what the sinful desires produce. The works of the flesh are evident, it says, which are adultery, fornication, uncleanness, lewdness, idolatry, sorcery, hatred, contentions, jealousies, outbursts of wrath, selfish ambitions, dissensions, heresies, envy, murders, drunkenness, revelries, and the like, of which I told you beforehand, just as I told you in time past, that those who practice such things will not inherit the kingdom of God. That's quite a list, isn't it? That's what comes from sinful desires, very different than what comes from spiritual desires. Verses 22 through 23 describe what spiritual desires produce in us. But the fruit of the Spirit is love, joy, peace, long-suffering, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, self-control. Against such there is no law. It's quite a contrast, isn't it? But where does it begin? It begins with the desires of our heart. We like to claim that our sin is the result of things that people have done to us, that other people have caused us to sin, or the result of some kind of disorder that we have in our brains that they don't quite work right. And so we do these these wicked things like, you know, we have an alcohol problem, we say, instead of looking at it as sinful desires that come from the heart. The truth is sin comes straight from the heart from the core of who you are. Jesus said in Mark 7, 21, for from within, out of the heart of men, proceed evil thoughts, adulteries, fornications, murders, and so on. James speaks of sin arising in exactly the same way from our desires, epithumeo, when he says, James 1, 14 through 15, but each one is tempted when he is drawn away by his own desires, epithumeo there, and enticed. Then when desire has conceived, it gives birth to sin, and sin, when it is full grown, brings forth death. This is why we need a new heart. We are corrupt right down to the innermost person, right to the core of who we are. When we sin, We are showing what we really are, what is in our heart. The truth is, what you do outwardly is always significantly better 
than what is in your heart. If you were to live out all that is in your heart, you would be considered a corrupt, a very corrupt individual. Isn't it so? I mean, there are detestable things that arise in our wicked, sinful hearts. So the 10th commandment is a command to change your desires, the very desires of your heart. Notice that it doesn't just say, the 10th commandment doesn't just say, do not covet. Because if it said that, it would be saying, as we've learned from what the word means, don't desire. Don't desire anything. And that wouldn't be a good thing, would it? We would be, we'd be like a, a, a zombie. We're just supposed to like, have no desires. So don't just say, do not covet. Now, we can say that in English because covet has the negative connotation. But the Hebrew, the original here in the commandment, doesn't have that. So that's why it says the things that we're not, the, 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 the things that we're not supposed to desire because they're things that we are supposed to desire. Like we saw in Psalm 19, that the law of the Lord is something that we should desire. The fruit of the Spirit is something that we should desire. So it does not say you shall not covet, but it says you shall not covet your neighbor's wife. You shall not covet your neighbor's house. You shall not covet, to use the Hebrew word, your neighbor's Camaro. Um, Camaro is the Hebrew word for a donkey. So uh, these are things that we're told in God's word. In other words, don't even desire for yourself in the secret place of your heart the spouse or the property that God gave to someone else. Don't even have a desire for it in your heart. You should be glad that God gave it to them and thankful for their sake that they have that blessing. Your desires are wrong when you want it instead of them to have it. You need to repent of, uh, of, that, of those desires and change those desires. This commandment covers a huge field, as you can see. I mean, it's so encompassing. This is the commandment, you know, that really did Paul in when he realized that, you know, he was a righteous Pharisee and he was doing everything outwardly that he was supposed to do. And then this commandment, wow, okay, I'm not to covet. And he saw in his heart the the sin that was there and he knew that he needed salvation. But let's look at three major sins that this commandment addresses. I plan to take each of these up in a separate sermon. So this is a bit of a a, a preliminary thing here that we're just scanning over this. First, it confronts the problem of hating your neighbor. That's the problem, isn't it? When you covet what God has given to your neighbor, you're hating your neighbor. You want him not to have what he has. So like if you're wanting to get his money to cheat him out of it somehow to, uh, to get ahead, then you're hating your neighbor. Um, you should want him to have what God has given to him. And, you know, this includes envy and jealousy along with it. Envy is a really wicked thing because with envy, basically, you don't even want it for yourself. You just can't stand for him to have uh, great wealth or to have great prosperity or something. Why should he have that? And you want to pull him down. Our society is so driven by, by this hatred, this envy of anyone that has more than us. We want to attack them and, and to call them evil and to pull them down. And that's not, a, that's not loving your neighbor. You should be glad if your neighbor prospers, even if you're not. Say, so, well, he must have cheated. 
Well, maybe he did. Maybe that does, that's not really your concern. Secondly, the 10th commandment confronts the sin of worry and anxiety. These come from desiring something that you are afraid God might not give to you. Or being afraid that he might take away something that you're clinging to and that you want to have. It's a problem of a lack of trust in your heavenly father. So this is something that this commandment about coveting covers. When you worry or fear, you doubt the goodness of your heavenly father and his wisdom and his ability to care for you and to notice what you need and what you have and to do what's best. Jesus addressed this directly in the Sermon on the Mount. We're going to be, we'll look at that in the future. Even a desire for lawful things like food and such can cause you to worry in a sinful way if, you desire for, if your desire for these things is excessive and if you can't leave matters with God and trust Him. If He wants you to serve Him with a very little bit, then that's the best way for you to serve Him, being hungry. If he wants you to serve him with great abundance, then be content with that. But you trust your heavenly father. You don't have to be anxious. Oh, what if I lose everything? What if you do? That means that God wants you to serve him without all those things. You can still serve God. What are you worried about? And a third major kind of sin that the 10th commandment addresses is the sin of ingratitude and discontentment. When you covet, you're not happy with what God has given you. You want more than what he's given you. You feel that he has not done a very good job in the way that he's distributed things and that they ought to have been distributed a little differently than they have. So you're dissatisfied with what he has chosen to do. You're like a whiny child that didn't get everything that the child wanted. You know, my cake isn't as big as their cake, you know, whatever, that kind of thing. I trust that you can see what an important place our desires have. We have seen that all the commandments should be seen as addressing the heart. But this last commandment, that is exclusively what it is about, directly addresses the heart. It makes it clear that the Lord wants us to deal with the roots of sin and not just with the outward behavior. He wants us to deal with our sin right down to the inmost desires to our inmost being. So this is a great challenge for us here. We live in a day, though, when people will object to God commanding our desires. Because as I mentioned before, that we think that desires are something that is sacred. So that's the second thing I want to look at, is that we live in a day when people will object to God commanding our desires. It's something that's not right. People will say, How can God command me to desire or not desire when I don't have any control over my desire? I just want some or I don't want it. How can I? I can't help it. I am what I am. It it is as if God is commanding me to be untrue to myself if he tells me that I'm not permitted to desire something and need to put away that desire. It's like killing part of who I am. That's the way people would talk about it. It would make me inauthentic if I was to deny my desires. And and it seems that way, doesn't it? I mean, you you can see this, this problem with relationships, for example. You know, a woman will decide that 
that she doesn't love her husband anymore. And, uh, and, and then she'll, she'll say that she has to be true to herself, that she has to divorce him. And so then she will, she will do that. Um, <clears throat> there are things that you just have a passion for, and you say, I can't help it. That's just the way I am. It could be for mathematics, or it could be for sports. Not necessarily a bad thing, but you say, that's who I am. It could be for music. It could be for a certain person that you're attracted to and you fall in love with. That's not necessarily a bad thing. If you're, you should love your wife if you're married. And it's just part of who you are. You say, so how can I change my desires? The Bible acknowledges that we're in bondage to our passions and desires. For example, in John 8, 34, Jesus said, Most assuredly, I say to you, whoever commits sin is a slave of sin. And in Romans 6, Paul speaks of how we were before our conversion, slaves to sin, to obey it in what? In its lusts, in its desires. That was where our heart was. We are indeed in bondage, slavery to sin. The word that's used there for slave is the strongest word for a slave. Most people will admit that some desires are very unfortunate. And perhaps they will even admit that some of their desires are wrong. For example, most people would say that it is not a good thing if they have a very strong desire for alcohol, for drunkenness, and for drugs, and that this is destructive to them or to a person that has those desires. When you see the damage that is done to your body, to your career, to your relationships, it's hard to deny that such, uh, such desires are harmful and bad. And likewise, if you desire to have sex with children, most people will say, that's not a good desire. That's not something you should give into. Although most people admit this, there are more and more voices now that are even condoning that sort of thing and saying, well, maybe if it's used in the right way somehow, it's not such a bad thing after all. Because after all, if someone has a passion for that and a desire for that, then how can you stop that? The truth is that in our society, more and more ground is given to the free expression of our desires to living out our passions and our desires. C.S. Lewis observed that in the Middle Ages, people recognized that they were part of a universe that was bigger than they are. They believed that they had to conform to what was out there, that they're a little drop in the big universe, and uh, they believed that they had to conform to that, whether it was nature or God or demons or the world system as a whole. There was a kind of humility and an effort to that they must fit in with what's out there. But now with modern man, we have turned that around and now we want to be the center and our desires and the whole world has to conform to us and to our desires. We're the center of the universe and our desires are the center. More and more, we want our desires to rule Everything around us is as if everything else is, should, should bend itself to my own desires. 
you can see examples of this giving ground to the free expression of our desires in many ways. You can see it with parents who try to indulge their children's desires. We were able to buy a nice playpen when our kids were little because we were very, very poor at the time and we needed a playpen and how could we afford one? And then we looked on the equivalent of Kijiji. Uh, They didn't have Kijiji then, but anyway, we looked up to see about where we could find a playpen. And sure enough, people had the playpen for sale and we go to the house and they say, oh yes, we got this brand new playpen, but our daughter just didn't like it. You know, so (laughs) my kids' desires, like, can't have it. So, so we bought a brand new playpen at a good price that they were getting rid of. And uh, you'll meet with parents who can't go on a trip because, oh, my, my child doesn't like to sit in a car seat. You know? So we can't, we can't. We can't even go across town to go to church because our child doesn't like to sit in a car seat. Children are not taught restrained in eating or in time spent on a computer or playing games. There is no thought of correcting their desires. If they want something, then those desires have to be catered to. Their desires are thought to be untouchable and uncorrectable. And you can see this problem with relationships. I mentioned before, a woman will decide that she doesn't love her husband anymore. So she says, I've got to be true to myself. I can't stay with this man anymore. I've got to divorce him. Instead of confronting her about sin of breaking the covenant that she made before God, pastors and Christian leaders will support her. They will even say things like, well, if you don't love your husband anymore, it would not be right for you to go on in this relationship. You've got to be true to who you are. That's nonsense. Likewise, a man will fall in love with another woman And he just cannot deny his feelings for her, even though she's married, even though he's married. But I just love her and I can't not love her. I have to be with her, he says, even though she's married, even though she's not a Christian, even though he's married. I can't deny my desires. I have to be true. But perhaps nowhere do we see this problem so clearly as with the sexual revolution. It began with suggesting that it is perfectly natural for young people to follow their sexual passions before they are married. Why should they deny their desires? We need to be free. We need to be who we really are. And everyone has these desires, and so we should be able to freely express these desires. Free love. Let's have this. How can they deny their desires? So they started sleeping around with each other and living together without marriage. And everyone decided that it was perfectly acceptable to do that. And then, of course, there were unwanted children that came as a result. And soon that led to abortion. Because, after all, of course, a woman cannot be expected to deliver a child that she doesn't want. She can't have a child if she doesn't desire to have a child. And it's going to interfere with her plans. So a woman's desire or choice was elevated to a high place, such a high place that she could act like a lawless king, a king who says of his subjects, I don't like those people that live over in that community. Go executioner and take all of those people out because I don't like them. My desire rules 
instead of what God says. And now this whole matter with the sexual revolution has gone to the point of indulging same-sex desires and even of denying your biological gender. If you don't want to be a woman, you can be a man, even though you are a woman. And if you don't want to be a man, you can be a woman. A person's desires can go against nature. It is said that a person can't help feeling themselves to be a different gender than they are. So they must be accommodated and allowed to be whatever they want to be. Their desires are superior to biology, to reality, to God's law. We also see the problem of elevating our own desires in the matter of the worship of God. Mentioned that a little bit in the earlier service. Instead of looking at what God has commanded us to do in our worship and making his word our rule, we follow our own desires and we make our own desires the rule of worship. What do I want? What pleases me? God has commanded us to read and preach his word with authority. But if we prefer dialogue and discussion instead of preaching, our desire trumps whatever God may have said in our thought. God has given us songs to sing, but if we want to write our own songs and we like our songs better, we can throw away his songs and have only the songs that we have written. God has given us the first day of the week to set apart for worship, but if we don't want to worship him on that day or for that whole day, we can worship him whenever we want. It's up to us. This is how it has affected even our worship. So increasingly for modern man, his desires and passions are given first place. We need to see that God can and does command our desires. If he does it, then it is right. By forbidding us to desire what God has given to our neighbor, the 10th commandment is teaching us that we are not to give free expression to our desires. God's authority reaches not only to what we do, but also to our very, the very desires of our hearts. We saw before that the, the objection that you cannot deny your desires without denying who you are, that that would be killing yourself. People say, if I deny my desires, it's like I'm dying. I'm killing part of who I really am. I'm not me anymore. And that's exactly what God calls you to do. That's exactly what he calls you to do. It's right there in Galatians 5. Because by nature, we all have desires that lead to adultery, fornication, uncleanness, lewdness, idolatry, sorcery, hatred, contentions, jealousies, outbursts of wrath, selfish ambitions, dissensions, heresies, envy, murders, drunkenness, revelries, and the like. Then, of course, we are to take the most radical action that can be taken and put those desires to death. That is exactly what God calls us to do. We must put our desires to death. We must be and become what we are not. Galatians 5.24 tells us that is exactly what those who have come to Jesus Christ for salvation have, in fact, done. It says, verse 24, and those who are Christ's have crucified the flesh, crucified, crucified the flesh, the desires 
with the flesh, with its passions and desires. If you have come to him, you have crucified your flesh with its passions and desires. You have died to what you are. The old self, that old self that was without Christ and that was without the Spirit of God. You had to die with Christ and to be raised with Him to walk in newness of life, as it says in Romans 6. The whole problem with rogue desires began at the fall when we fell away from God. That was when we set up our desires contrary in place of God's desires. It was what we might call a very small matter. We wanted to eat a piece of fruit that God had told us not to eat. That was all. Just a piece of fruit. But by eating that fruit, we took a huge radical shift. Once we said, I want to do this even though God says no, and I am justified in doing this because I want to do this, we were completely rejecting Him as the Lord of the universe, as our God. It is no help to say, but I agree with God about most things. I agree that I shouldn't murder people and things like that. It's just a few little differences that I have. Once you follow your own desires instead of the will of God, you have established an entirely radically different order in which you are now the final judge of right and wrong rather than God. It is a radical foundational shift. No longer are you God's servant. You may have him as an advisor. You may say, oh God, give me advice. What should I do here? But in the end, he is not the Lord. You decide when you will follow his counsel and when you will not. In the end, it comes down to what you want rather than what he wants. Your desires rule. You will consider his desires But in the end, you will follow your own desires. It is a radical, fundamental shift. This way of living is what Paul calls living according to the flesh, the passions and desires of the flesh. It is the self-life that has set God aside as Lord. And we have seen what it produces in Galatians 5, 19 through 21. I like to read this list. It's a long list deliberately to show us where this all goes, where it ends up. Adultery, fornication, uncleanness, lewdness, idolatry, sorcery, hatred, contentions, jealousies, outbursts of wrath, selfish ambitions, dissensions, heresies, envy, murders, drunkenness, revelries, and the like. Our own desires are what lead to all of these things. So it is our own desires that must be crucified with Christ. Our flesh, with its passions and desires, 
must be mortified and put to death. But how can you change your desires? How can you crucify the flesh with its passions and desires? How do we have any ability or control to do that? That's what we'll look at last today. It is essential to see what Paul says in Galatians 5.24. And those who are Christ have crucified the flesh with its passions and desires. My friends, you cannot crucify your flesh with its passions and desires unless you come to Jesus Christ. It is not that you crucify your passions and desires so that you can come to Jesus Christ. No, no, no. That was the error of the Galatians. That is to turn it all around backwards. That's the very error that Paul is addressing and preaching against the Galatians' practice here. Some of them had turned this around backwards so that they were trying to keep God's law so that they could be a Christian. And Paul is telling them that that will never work. Look back at Galatians 5.4. Paul tells you that if you attempt to be justified by the law, it does not bring you to Christ. It rather keeps you away from Christ. Let me read it to you from verse 3, Galatians 5, 3 and 4. And I testify again, Paul says, to every man who becomes circumcised that he is a debtor to keep the whole law. You have become estranged from Christ. You who attempt to be justified by the law, you have fallen from grace. The law was given to prepare God's people, the church of the old covenant for Christ not by their keeping the law, but by showing them how desperately they needed him. They had all the sacrifices for sin that were part of the law that kept before them the fact that they needed atonement, that they needed washing, that they needed cleansing, so that they would see the need that they had for a Savior. They come to Christ to be crucified with him. They don't become they don't crucify themselves so that they can come to Christ. The way we crucify or put to death our flesh with its passions and desires is by coming to Christ. We come to him as we are, ruined and sinful and defiled and we put ourselves in his hands to save us. When you do that, you die with him. He died for you 2000 years ago. But you died with him when you trusted him for salvation, when you come to him. You die with him. It is the end of you because now your life is hid with Christ in God. This is not a coming to him that you do in power. It is not some great work that you do coming to Christ. You are so weak that what you do to come to him is you just fall upon him. You just lean upon, because you have no strength, you have no ability, and you say, Lord, you save me. You deliver me. I cannot save myself. I fall upon you, Lord. If you do not catch me, I have nothing. I have nowhere to go. You die with him, and then he brings you back to life again. It is all his work, you see. And then when you're crucified with him, 
you're able to live. But let me tell you how. Again, it is right here in Galatians 5, in verse 25. It says, If we live in the Spirit, let us also walk in the Spirit. Do you know what it means to live in the Spirit? It means that you're born of the Spirit of God. You're born again. You're made alive. How? By coming to Jesus. This is the change that God promises in the new covenant that He makes with us in Jesus Christ. Do you remember the two parts of the covenant? God promises two things in the new covenant. The forgiveness of sin and new life by the Holy Spirit. And do you remember how the Lord describes new life in the Holy Spirit? He describes it as a change of your desires. The very thing that I've been talking to you about, isn't it? The very thing that you cannot do, the Holy Spirit does. He changes your desires. He takes away the stony heart that won't listen to God, and He gives you a heart that does listen to God, and that wants to please God, and that wants to keep His law, and that delights in His law. Let's look at that covenant promise. We've already seen that our flesh is crucified with its passions and desires, but keeping your place in Galatians 5, look with me for a moment in Hebrews 10. We'll come back to Galatians 5. But go to Hebrews 10, verse 16 and 17, and you'll see the two things I just told you about that God promises in His covenant. Hebrews 10, 16. This is the covenant that I will make with them after those days, says the Lord. I will put my laws into their hearts, and in their minds I will write them. That's the first thing. That's the one we're talking about. And then he adds, their sins and their lawless deeds I will remember no more. That's the second thing. So right now, again, we're talking about the first thing mentioned here. What does it mean for God to put his laws into our hearts and to write them into our minds? It is a change of your inmost desires, a change of the desires of your heart. A new heart with new desires is the gift of the Holy Spirit. He gives you a desire to obey God's law, His commandments. That is the work of the Holy Spirit. Now you want to live with God, to please Him. It is a radical change. It is a radical change from what we fell, how we fell, where our desires were made supreme Now his desires are again made supreme. So when you come to Christ, he does what you cannot do by the Holy Spirit. He changes your desires. Okay, now go back to Galatians 5 again, and you can see the result. Now you have these new desires. Okay, you have a desire to please your heavenly Father, to walk with him, to obey him. You love his law. And what happens then? These new desires clash with the old desires. So it's not that the old desires are completely gone. There's a clash that goes on here. There's a war going on. This is what Galatians 5.17 is talking about when it says, for the flesh lusts against the spirit and the spirit against the flesh. And these are contrary to one another so that you do not do the things that you wish. So what should you do then if you have come to Jesus and are alive in the Spirit now? What should you do now that you have these new spiritual desires in you that clash with the old desires of the flesh? Look at verse 25 again. It says, if we live in the Spirit, let us also walk in the Spirit. If I have been made alive in the Spirit, 
I need to walk in the Spirit. Walking in the Spirit means that you follow those desires. You walk, you conduct yourself according to those new desires that the Holy Spirit has given you, rather than walking according to the old desires of the flesh. You have no business following the old desires of the flesh because you have been crucified with Christ and you're made alive. You have a new master now and you are now a servant to that new master. What business would you have in following your old master? There's a new master. Remember earlier when we looked at sanctification, we looked at Romans 6. And we said if you work for, if you're a slave to a fisherman and then you change and become a servant to a farmer, then you don't go down to the dock and show up at the boat. You go to work, you report to work at the, on the farm because you have a new master. What business do you have then to walk according to the desires of the flesh when you have come to Christ and been made alive in the Spirit? If we live in the Spirit, let us also walk in the Spirit. And of course, if you walk in the Spirit, then you won't fulfill the desires of the flesh anymore. That's exactly what it says in verse 16. I say then, walk in the Spirit, and you shall not fulfill the lust of the flesh. You don't do the works of the flesh anymore because you're walking in the Holy Spirit according to the desires of the Spirit. The Spirit fills you with desires for Christ, for His Word, for His ways. Follow after those desires, and the fruit of the Spirit will come. You see, there are two very, very different directions. When we go away from God, as we did at the fall, and we are following our desires, walking according to our own desires, then we end up with that whole mess of things that we see that Paul talks about in Galatians. We become eventually like a a, a wretched, horrendous being that's just filthy and defiled and, and grotesque. That's where it leads. It leads to death. It leads to that kind of behavior. And we say, oh, well, I wouldn't do all that. Yes, you would. When God turns you over wholly to your desires, that's where you end up. That's why the world is as it is. Because we have fallen from God. He restrains us now. Lots of restraint. When He takes the restraint off, when He delivers us over to hell, those who are delivered over to hell, then they will become reprehensible because they will follow all the desires of the self and the flesh that's alienated from their Creator. But if we walk in the Spirit and we follow the desires of the Spirit and of God's will, then we will become that which is lovely and beautiful. We will be able to serve our Lord Jesus Christ in ways that are pleasing to Him, to love one another, to live in harmony with our God forever and ever, for all eternity. So you're either going this way or you're going that way. You don't go in the middle. It's either this way or that way. Follow the desires of the Spirit and the fruit of the Spirit will come. Now, of course, you need to pray earnestly for grace to walk in the Spirit, as you all know. And when you fail, and you will, you need to repent and be restored to the Lord. 
but the Lord will enable you to transform not only your behavior, but also your desires. So that over the years, even those things that tug so hard and pull at you now will start to be suppressed. And you'll have new desires that replace those old desires. Already you do. But walk after the desires of the Spirit and not the flesh. His grace is amazingly powerful. It doesn't just change us outwardly. It changes us right to the core of who we are. So yes, it is impossible for you to truly change your desires in the way that they need to be changed. But what is impossible for you is possible with God. Come to Jesus for salvation. You will die with Him and be raised to new life in the Spirit. Only the Spirit can change your heart and give you new desires. Then it is your privilege to do as Galatians says, and to walk according to the Spirit instead of according to the flesh. Please stand and let's ask God to help us. <clears throat> oh Lord God, we come before you now with thanksgiving that you have given us such a salvation that is able to change us from the very core of our being. We are insensible of how corrupt we really are in our wretched sinful hearts and the direction that it will lead if we continue to follow our own passions and desires. Father, we think about those who obtain ultimate power and have no restraint, a king or a dictator that has no one that can ever restrain him. He becomes a man who orders people to be killed at his own will when they haven't even done anything wrong. We see, Lord, that we become reprehensible creatures that when we're left to ourselves without restraint, that, Lord, it is not a pretty thing at all. But we praise you, O Lord, that when your salvation comes, that we're able to, to die with Christ, to be crucified with him, to our passions and lusts, so that we may now live by the Spirit according to your will that we may be able to bring forth the beautiful fruit of the Spirit, which is so much better than the works of the flesh. Lord, we pray then that you would help us, O Lord, that having come to Christ, assuming that we have come to Christ, that then, O Lord, that we would walk in the Spirit and not fulfill the desires of the flesh anymore. That you would help us, O Lord, because we find weakness. We find that the flesh will tug at us and that many times, Lord, we fall and we fail. But we thank you that there is forgiveness with you in Christ Jesus and that we can rise up and walk again in the life that we are called to live. We pray that more and more we would put off the old man and put on the new man that is renewed in the likeness of Jesus Christ. We thank you, Lord, for the hope that we have and the joy that we have in that hope. We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. What a grand change the Lord makes when we come to Him for salvation. Receive now His blessing. May the Lord your God be with you as He was with your fathers. May He not leave you nor forsake you, that He may incline your hearts to Himself, to walk in all His ways, and to keep His commandments and His statutes and His judgments which he has commanded your fathers. Amen.